0: is a podcast created by Free Press, an advocacy group fighting for your rights to connect and communicate. Each episode, we'll talk about what's happening in the world of media, technology, and journalism, and what we think is next. Learn more at freepress.net. Today's episode is hosted by Candace Clement and Colette Watson. The views and opinions expressed here are not necessarily those of free press. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the topic of media consumption. And our theme is the media diet. What's your media probiotic?
1: (laughs) We have so many food jokes, so I hope you're all ready. (laughs) We
0: really do. Candace and I have the most random references and inside jokes. We won't subject you to any more of that, though. We want to hear from you. So um, for the listeners, we want to let you know who's who's uh, chatting today. We have a couple more of our brilliant free press colleagues that maybe you haven't heard from yet in this podcast series. So we have Dana Floberg. We have Brandon Forrester, Christina Pierce, and the wonderful Misty Perez-Truitson, and we are going to talk about our media preferences and, and experiences. So before we jump into it, let's take just a quick minute to talk about a media moment that's sticking with each of us from the last few weeks, something you read or watched or listened to that maybe you loved or that really resonated. The connection. The connection. Candice, do you have a media moment?
1: Yeah, sure. Um... So I have told a couple of you about this already. Actually, I think I've told all of you because I posted it, like, all over our internal channels. But I just learned about this thing the kids are doing because I'm a hashtag old, um, flop Instagrams. So these are, like, Instagram accounts that are run by multiple teenagers. And I think the age range was, like, 12 to 15, where essentially, I I as I learned in my – Elderness, a flop is like a fail. And they post all of these different like fails or flops and use them as sort of a forum to talk about, you know, some of them are about like celebrities and, you know, fails that celebrities have done. Uh, But there are actually an increasing number of political accounts that are flops. And so I just thought it was super interesting. It was really interesting article. I can't remember exactly where, but we'll put it in the show notes Um, because it really focused in on the way that Young people, very young people, are consuming news and information. And there was a quote in there from um, uh, a student who pointed out that you know it's really hard to know what kind of information is like real or true. And they even said that they had a distrust of like their, you know, their teachers in school because a teacher is just one person offering their viewpoint or opinion. And I just thought that that was really interesting and fascinating, um, particularly as we enter a conversation we're about to talk about, you know, media and uh, media consumption and, you know, how we get news and information. So that's that's what stuck with me. Yeah.
0: Wow. I, I feel so far removed from all of that. <laughs> and it's kind of scary. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Christina, I hear you chuckling. What's a media moment that stuck out to you in the recent weeks?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, so today, when I was walking here to work, I usually like spend a good 30 minutes walking from the metro, just like unwind a little bit. But I was listening to an NPR uh, podcast that covered kind of rehashing what happened with the two black men at Starbucks, um, and how they were um, asked to leave and arrested um, for having that business meeting. Um, And the podcast was pretty much saying that a lot of times, when situations like that happen that a lot of times white people have a tendency to um, double guess the situations that happen to people of color um, regarding racism. So like asking, like, is that really what happened? Is that the whole video, you know, or um, are you being too sensitive? Kind of questions like that. And it made me think about like my childhood great growing up and um, just thinking about things that happened to me, like through my experiences and wondering, Like, how much do I overthink? And how often do I let other people kind of, like, tell me what was reality? And that really resonated with me because I think that happens a lot to um, a lot of us. I'm really wondering what media moment stood out
0: to you, Brandon.
3: Yeah, it was um, was actually a little video clip I watched last night from Patrick Stewart. Sir Patrick Stewart? I don't know. Patrick Stewart. Sir Patrick (laughs) Stewart. Get it right. (laughs) (laughs) A.K.A. Dr. Xavier, aka. Uh, what's the other one I'm thinking of? He plays another character too. Jean so Luc
4: Picard.
3: That's the one, Jean Luc. Yeah. Uh, that's actually just a minor character. That to forget that one. <laughs> so he was talking on stage, um, and he was talking about the character Jean Luc Picard and how throughout his career he really felt like he was pigeonholed a lot and wasn't given other roles. And so he had like some mixed feelings about it, but that recently with just. Uh, um shitstorm that our world has become, that he's kind of turned back to watching Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, he's been watching a lot lately, he said, and that just like for a lot of people, that it like gave him a place to be to be able to like see that right now it doesn't feel like the future is very bright a lot of times, but just to see like, oh, we do have a future, we have a future together. And I think that there are a lot of people that have had reactions to Star Trek, whether it was the first series or even today as they're coming out. Um, I know there are a lot of stories about people that, that that really influence. And what really stood out to me was that he decided to actually come back. So there's going to be more. There's going to be a whole new series with Captain Jean-Luc Picard. And the reason why he said he was going to do it, even though he had mixed feelings about it, was because he felt in this moment that we really needed that we needed a show like that, that was looking so far ahead in the future that we could imagine possibilities that seem impossible right now. Um, And also talked about how so many people had come up and told him over the years that they literally wouldn't be here if it wasn't for their experience with Star Trek and finding a place where they saw themselves in the future. And so that just really stuck with me. Also, I'm a big nerd and I'm really excited about Star Trek and I like Jean-Luc Picard, but I, that moment, it just like really resonated with what the topic of this podcast was and how important it is to not just like see a future, but to see yourself in that future. Um, Yeah. And to be able to see a future that's far enough away from our present that all these things that we couldn't imagine actually seem possible.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I think we could do an entire podcast episode. We'll just bookmark this for the future on like science fiction as media and the Mm -hmm. intersection with all Mm -hmm. of these. Yes, Um, please. (laughs) Okay, everybody's like RSVPing (laughs) to be on that one. Very exciting. Uh, Thanks so much for sharing that, Brandon. Misty, I would love to hear from you about a media moment that really stuck out for you over the last couple of weeks.
5: Yeah, um, my media moment is, also inspired by someone who, or some someone who like to dream and really embody practices around a different future, a future, a little more liberated, a liberated future. Um, I have been listening to, probably on repeat, I might be up to four times now, um, the Generative Somatic's first healing justice podcast, or sorry, Generative Somatic put out their first podcast, and it's called Trauma, Healing, and Collective Power. And the conversation was hosted by Adrian Marie Brown, who is often talking about the relationships between science fiction and um, really visioning and dreaming for a different future. This conversation in particular was about the intersections of trauma healing and collective power and organizing. And it was just it was so rich for me to hear the connections between organizing spaces and trauma and depression and you know the ways that those shape our lives and we bring those into we bring those into everything we do, especially organizing work. You know, so many of us come to organizing work as a form of healing and as a form of really working to transform um, the world around us and to create structural change. And this podcast they really explored like what does it mean when healing spaces are depoliticized or void of politics um, and really focusing and building on structural change and what does it mean when organizing spaces don't account for the trauma and oppression that we hold and move through the world with. And so having those conversations come together, it just felt like home for me it felt like finding my my media moment home um, as someone who comes out of a background of human services and counseling and trauma work and having moved from that work into organizing and advocacy for structural change it's just been so um, it's been so comforting to see those things brought together and to not feel like I've got to compartmentalize different ways that I approach and see the work but instead um, how they can fit together and fit, fit together in a way that can really help us build build collective power and collective healing and transformation. And I think is, is so key to us moving towards, towards the future that so many of us are dreaming about and hoping for and advocating for, but really connecting it back to, um, yeah, connecting back to individual healing, collective healing, and how that can shape change.
0: Oh my gosh. You see, I'm like one fifth of the way into that episode. This is Colette. And oh my gosh, she's when they said he, there's no healing without liberation and there's no liberation without healing, I almost like fell out of my car and it was moving. So that would have been awkward.
3: Yeah.
5: Uh, <laughs> yes. Such yes. A my good cheeks I get goosebumps just hearing it now. There's just so much wisdom in that podcast like I'm just I'm so grateful for Adrienne Marie Brown, for Spenta Kondawawa, Penta J.C. Haynes and the user folks who are through this podcast and so many others sharing such incredible wisdom that's really resonating with me right now.
0: Yes, thank you. And Dana, what's your media moment?
4: My media moment at this point so much of the media that I'm consuming these days and I know the same for, for others on, on this and, and probably many folks. So much of it is dark and very current events related and can be really frustrating. So a lot of the media that I've been resonating with uh, has been very removed from that. And actually, the, the there's this podcast that Brandon actually recommended to me called Flash Forward, that's hosted by Rose Eveleth. And it's super fun and super interesting. Basically, each episode, she comes up with a possible future uh, and explores it and talks to scientists or experts to say, what would this future look like? Is it plausible? When might it happen? If it was going to happen? And it's all kinds of futures from like very very possible probable things uh, one of the episodes is about us running out of antibiotics which is a thing that is currently in the process of happening. And then there's another episode about what if space pirates brought a second moon to the earth? what would that do to to our uh, our just our earth? Wow. And uh, yeah, so it's a lot of fun. And uh, the most recent one I was listening to uh, was about sleep, where the idea was a future where we've figured out how to not sleep anymore, which feels <laughs> very relevant to this particular time and moment. So many of us are working so hard and not, not taking the time to rest and rejuvenate. But I think part of the reason that that this podcast sticks out to me as a, a media moment is it is, I think, really radical and important to imagine the future and possible futures, especially when we're in such a tight, stressful political moment to actually take that time, whether it's, you know, something very serious and real or something just very goofy to like break yourself outside of the box of what seems inevitable or what cynical logic tells us must happen. And to remember that the future can be a lot of things and we have the power to shape that and decide that. So that's sort of what's sticking with me this week.
1: That's awesome. Uh, hashtag second moon. And I love that. <laughs> and I love that pocket so many podcast recommendations here, which is super cool. Um, Yeah. And I feel like dreaming and visioning in that way is like, it's a muscle that we have been in so many ways, like sort of like, I don't know, it's just, it's atrophied for so many people, right? It's, it's very hard to do that in our daily lives. And so, yeah, it's really cool to, to see these different avenues that sort of open up that possibility and kind of like get us thinking in that way. So that's really awesome. Thanks for sharing that, Dana. Uh, Colette, what's sticking out for you? Yes. Love
0: that too. Um, You know, I guess picking up on what Dana mentioned about getting away from this idea of um, inevitability or what what we can see every day. My media moment has to do with getting away from like the language that we tend to be stuck in in our corporate media environment. (laughs) And so I was watching Meet the Press because I am a 78 year old and... (laughs) And this episode grabbed my, um, grabbed my attention because I heard Chuck Todd say to his guest, which was Republican Senator Roy Blunt from Missouri, um, is Trump anti-black? And he asked him that. No, no, no. I'm sorry. That's not what he said. He said, is the GOP anti-black? And he asked him that because Donald Trump has been consistently slurring folks uh, like LeBron James, mm-hmm. Representative Maxine Waters and CNN host Don Lemon on Twitter um, calling them dumb. And it's, you know, really quite obvious to me and I think to all of us that he is, that Trump is anti-black and that, that is why he makes that statement because it's playing on a very old and hackneyed stereotype um, of black folks as, you know, having inferior intelligence. But it's interesting to see it sort of tugged at that way on a show like Meet the Press, which is really like a bastion, of our traditional media and a place where a lot of people, you know, get up on Sunday mornings and go to know what is happening and what's important and pertinent in politics. So, you know, to hear Chuck Todd say, not say racially charged, not say, you know, um, racially controversial or just sort of, sort of the different euphemisms that get used most of the time by big media, but for him to specifically hone in on um, anti-blackness was really important to me because, um, you know, we, we understand those of us doing this work that anti-blackness is kind of the fulcrum or like the pivot that white supremacy turns on. And that proximity to whiteness um, is really sort of the measuring stick um, for the way that a lot of oppression plays out. And or or a driver, I should say. And so it was really, really almost gratifying for me to hear Chuck Todd use that term, which is a term that I never hear in major media, but always hear constantly in, you know, my work at Free Press or my other um, activism. It was kind of gratifying to hear Chuck Todd using the language of people as opposed to the language of politicians. And um, it was interesting to see Roy Blunt kind of squirm in his seat and try to explain how the GIP GOP isn't anti-black, which you know, spoiler alert, it is. But we'll talk about that another day.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. I mean, just we've been having this conversation internally here uh, at Free Press for many years, and it just it still blows my mind anytime I hear phrases like racially charged or something like that, and. Yeah, Any anytime you actually see the media calling things like it is, like I think that's the media that we all want in the world, right? Like we mm-hmm, want media mm-hmm. that's actually true and reflects our experiences. And, you know, I think you put it really well, Colette, like it's it's about that humanness and like a real lived experience as opposed to approaching it like a politician. So,
0: yeah. You know, and I, and I got to say also, I deserve no credit because really thinking about media using language of community is a concept that I've got. From our colleagues, um, Alicia Bell and Mike Rospoli, who work on our News Voices work and are really challenging journalists to, to, you know, investigate their their language choices and and to reflect people as opposed to um, halls of power. So shout out to them. Quick plug.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you all so much for sharing your media moments. This is like a highlight of my week when I get to hear from folks uh, about all the different things that really stuck out for them. So the thing that we wanted to talk about in this conversation uh, was sort of thinking about our own media diets. And like I said, we have lots of food analogies. I'll try to keep it pretty light, but we wanted to start off by sort of talking about what, like what is your diet? What does that consumption look like for you every day? You know, we all consume media throughout the day, and like we're using a very expansive definition of media here, right? This could be social media. You might get a lot of stuff out of memes and like, that's your media consumption in a day. You might be a strict newspaper reader. You know, like, like you get a lot through songs or podcasts. Like there's a lot of different ways to consume media. So we're really curious to hear from the range of folks who are, you know, sitting around the virtual table here. Like what does that routine and flow look like for you? Where are you getting your news and information? Where do you get your entertainment? And, you know, just kind of give us a little window into, into what it's like in your daily life. Um, How about we start off with Brandon to hear a little bit from you?
3: Sure. Um, I just consume a lot, a lot, a lot of media. I'm obsessive about the news. uh, And I usually use like an RSS feed because I can't I couldn't visit all million websites. And it's pretty broad. It's not just like news. It's a lot of stuff from. Stuff that relates to what we do here with tech and media, to stuff that relates to just like awful celebrity gossip, because that's important to get a little bit of, too. Um, <laughs> just a whole lot as far as news. I also yeah. listen to a ton of podcasts. I do a lot of driving, commuting, so I listen to a lot of podcasts and audiobooks. Um, and I've, this year, I've been trying to just read authors that are women of color, and um, and I'm trying to think of what else. YouTube. I look at a lot of YouTube. I'm on the internet. But I I can't I'm somebody that likes to complete everything. So I like to get through all of my all of my news stuff in my RSS feed or my or whatever. But I can't do Twitter because it's too much. I can never get to the end. There's not a lot of Twitter. There's not a lot of Instagram. Maybe a little bit of Facebook. But um, yeah, I, it's a lot of podcasts, a lot of reading news stories online. And yeah, I think that's I think that's the bulk of it. Definitely so a lot of memes ap- and gifts in there too.
1: Mm-hmm. I so appreciate you sharing that um, you like to finish things to the end because I think that that's actually very rare in today's media consumption. Um, I say that as somebody who has like so many tabs open that I'm eventually going to read, and I've read like the first two paragraphs of that my browser will crash. So, so
5: yeah. real. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's awesome. Uh yeah, Dana, I mean that's really real for you, right? So what is your what does your media consumption look like on a daily basis?
4: Well, directly counter to Brandon, all the news I find I find on Twitter. Um, it's probably I don't know it's I have a very strange relationship with Twitter now uh, just because, it can be one of the worst things for me to do in a day, to like get stuck just scrolling through Twitter and seeing crappy news story after crappy news story. But I also follow, I follow a lot of activists and I try to follow a pretty diverse group of activists. So it also can be one of the main sources of hope in my media diet. Because uh, it's not just plain news stories, it's it's news coming from and in the voices of people who are trying to make it better. Uh, but it is, I, I definitely feel that, Brandon, that like scrolling endlessly and suddenly are like, wow, I was going to bed and now it's 45 minutes later and I don't know how that happened. Uh, for entertainment, yeah, I've, I've been focusing a lot on just real physical books. Partially to try to get myself off.
0: Physical books.
4: I know. <laughs> Partially just because, you know, I, I go to work all day. I stare at a screen. I look up news. I stare at a screen. Uh, and just for, you know, my eyesight, simply, I want to, like, shake it up sometimes and, mm-hmm. and read something that's a little bit more soothing. And, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm also someone who's very... I, I love creative writing and fantasy and sci-fi and speculative fiction and, you know, like I have my own creative writing projects and so a lot of that to really try to write things well, I think you have to read a lot. So I've been reading a lot of fantasy books and young adult fantasy books since that's a genre I really enjoy and yeah, trying to, trying to focus on diverse authors too. I think it was a couple years ago when I realized how many of the books that I read, that I just read because I picked them off of bestseller lists or they were ones I'd heard about a lot, uh, they were all by white men. And it was so satisfying. It's, it's also something I get a lot from Twitter because now I follow a lot of authors of color, queer authors, uh, disabled authors. And then when they tweet about their books, I can go find them, I can go read them. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun, and it's really exciting, especially for genres like fantasy and sci-fi, to be getting perspectives that you don't hear every day. It's not just 27 versions of Game of Thrones, which I love, but that's one story, right? That's one version, even, of like a medieval history with magic in it, and there's so many other cultures and so many other takes and folklore to pull from that I'm just less familiar with in my position as a white woman who's my whole life lived in the United States, but it's, it's been really exciting to actually like make a conscious effort to open that up and seek out completely different perspectives.
1: Yeah. 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 So much of what you said, Dana, really resonates for me as well. Um, And I think really, you know, it's for me anyway, it's so much of the connection of like, why, Net neutrality is so important in the work that we do because the, that example that you're providing about following like lots of different people, you know, whether they be authors or musicians or, you know, whoever um, mm-hmm. creative producers in the world on Twitter or on Instagram, like I have the same experience in my own sort of media consumption. And that would not be possible, you know, if we were living in a world without net neutrality. And it certainly wasn't the case when I was growing up. And, you know, my media consumption was entirely based on like whatever Clear Channel and the big five companies. Companies, you know, wanted to prioritize, which we all know exactly what that looks like. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Most definitely.
1: I wonder, uh, Misty, I
0: think you might have a little bit different take. Uh, what is your media diet
5: like? Hmm. Uh, much like my real diet, it's something I try to pay attention to, because without without being mindful of it, I can develop some really bad habits and I'm really coming out of like, I think coming into 2018, I've tried to shift my, my media diet because I think up until that point, I may have been binging on media in ways that were harmful to me. Like I could, I could get lost in the media from the moment I woke up until the moment I went to bed and, you know, consuming like every article I could on whatever current event was happening. And with, you know, since the start of this administration, every day it was one new pain after another. that I found myself really locked in. and So coming into 2018, I made a really conscious, conscious shift about like, how am I going to approach this? To what I, what I'm consuming in terms of media and, you know, consume less certainly, um, but also be really mindful of like, what is it I'm, I'm spending my time reading and watching and engaging with and when you first asked the question, the other piece that came to mind was like, oh, how do I approach my media diet? Well, in the morning, I fast because I also have two children who I'm it's very coming into really sharp focus this year that I have to attend to their media diet as well. Um, and how quickly when you introduce a new form of media or technology to your children, they can kind of adopt it and want it always. So um, for my, my media diet, I start out first thing in the morning by fasting and really trying hard to encourage my kids to not just jump out of bed and reach for the ipad to play a video game or to turn on the tv to watch their favorite show and it's really remarkable to see like how how much how much energy has to go into shifting that flow it's something i've worked on a lot this week in particular and today was maybe the first morning we all woke up and just had breakfast and had a nice quiet calm morning um but it's also you know required me to put a little bit of restraint on as well to not be like, oh, what's happening at work? What happened overnight? What's the, what's the morning news? Like to not just grab my phone first thing um, because it can easily throw my morning off, my energy off, my day off. Um, so I've been thinking about that a lot. And then, you know, as soon as I drop the children off, the, either the car radio is on or a podcast is on. I try really hard to start with continuing on this metaphor or analogy of a, a healthy breakfast. I usually like to start my day with. Um, Either a snippet of the news, so I'm not completely in the dark by the time I get to work. Um, But then I really do like to take in a substantive podcast that I think can help set my thinking for the day. And given our work and all that we do, I feel like there is no shortage of incoming news and information via all of you, via many social and media threads that are open on my own browsers throughout the day, Candify absolutely have so many tabs and links and many ways of storing things that I'm going to read you know and I can I can take bits of that in throughout the day and then when I get home I really have to think like you know the other piece around having children is there's there's not a lot of time for me like once once I'm home I'm like there's there's family there's time where I want to be spent being really present and being really mindful of like am I am I losing myself in a phone to reason read a news article and you know, having your children call you in to say like, hey, are you, do you want to play or do you want to read that thing on your phone? It's been another way to help me as I think about what my, my media intake and diet is. Um, so yeah, in the evening, um, we tend to not really turn the TV on and the kids will get a show before they go to bed and then read some books. And we tend to spend just as much time reading as we do watching TV. And then um, it's off and there's like, an hour left in my day where I usually have to navigate, like, what what do I want to consume now? Do I want some salty potato chips in the form of, like, Facebook, or do I want something a little more sensitive? Um, or do I just want to watch a show? And usually I'm sort of navigating, like, where do I want to spend my energy, and what do I need uh, at the end of, of a day, and what stories and news articles is there that I want to really dig more into to gain a deeper understanding, or Do I actually just, like, need some more of a break from that? Because there is so much that just naturally seeps in throughout the day. That's a little bit of a Mm -hmm. a reflection on my news diet. I do like to eat local, especially on the (laughs) weekends. I tend to uh, dig into the local paper. I live in a really small rural community, and the newspaper is the only way to kind of keep up on what's going on. Yeah, For local news. I know and I love (laughs) I love that analogy too because I think we could make
1: some really great bridges (laughs) over to like this what is the CSA of media? Like is that is that like is that like paying to support your favorite podcast or public you know, your local public media or community media stations? Like It's Patreon. mm -hmm. Yeah,
5: exactly. It's (laughs) Patreon.
1: That's that's the CSA of media. Yes. I really,
0: I think we need to give it up real quick for really masterful use and extension of this metaphor.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know. I also kind of want to do a Halle.
2: thing.
1: <laughs> sorry, I also want to kind of do a thing where we'd say like, uh, is Facebook like a uh, salty potato chips or like a warm chocolate chip cookie to you? Because <laughs> <laughs> you enjoy no. it when it's happening, and then afterwards you're like, why did? I why? Do that?
0: why? Oh, my gosh. I love it. I love it. Well, I think we have Christina, right? Christina, did you share your media diet? You did not. Tell us about it. No, I have not.
2: Yes, I am next. Okay. Yes. So um, close to everyone else, um, I kind of consume, if you will, um, at different times what I need. But the one thing I will hint at that is a little bit different is um, with the use of like books and stuff. Yes, I do love reading Books created by people of color or women of color. And I've realized lately that even if the book is not necessarily like groundbreaking, it's just so um, satisfying to like resonate with it and be like, yes, that is true. Like, I do that, I think that way. Um, And that's something that I haven't had the opportunity to have those incidents where um, I really related more to like the content of different things because of um, media kind of like spreading out and just things circulating more being like aware and in tune to different authors who are um, women of color. Um, Yeah. It's been great to just kind of have like that head nod, you know what I mean? When you're reading or when you're consuming um, different podcasts of like, yes, I agree. Um, But that has been really great for my consumption.
0: Wow. That's awesome. I I so identify. Um, I remember when I was 12, I stole my aunt's copy of um, a trilogy by Terry McMillan. (laughs) Which, if anyone is familiar with Terry McMillan, that's the author of, like, Waiting to Exhale, Disappearing Acts,"
2: and these, like, very
0: adult (laughs) stories of Black women, and I was, like, 12, like, oh
2: yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, my
0: goodness. Yeah, there is something beautiful and affirming. So, you know, speaking of affirmation, let's talk a little bit about um, representations in media that you identify Mm -hmm. with. Or times when you have seen yourself, your experiences, your identity, your perspectives reflected in media. Do, let's, let's, let's pose the question this way. Do you all see yourself reflected, your life, your identity? And how do you think net neutrality and like the consolidation of media to where we sort of have a few powerful voices very much owning and shaping media? How do you see that impacting identity and storytelling in the media especially you know what you've experienced relative to your own identity and, and anybody just jump in let's let's popcorn this around because i think there's probably plenty to say
4: um i mean for for media representation uh i mean again obviously as a white woman i'm very aware of the privilege of i've seen myself represented in more media than i think a lot of folks get to Uh, But at the same time, often in a very specific, particular way, because there are still there are these ways that that sexism impacts these characters. And so while there's a lot of white women on screen, Mm -hmm. uh, there's not a lot of interesting or diverse white women on screen. Uh Um, One of the one of the things that at this point always gets to me is this practice of um, bridging. Uh, female characters which is that 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 trope that you see all the time where oh we have uh, this female character and we have to do some sort of violence against her in order to motivate a male character Uh, and once you start looking for that it's it's hard not to see it everywhere because Mm -hmm. it is just all over the place um but again, so a lot of like my search for representation in media has been more about searching for not just seeing a face that looks like mine, but seeing characters that have have depth. Yeah, um, and I think that that's true for for so many of these sure. perspectives, and definitely when it comes to net neutrality, uh, my my first, my very first assignment as a brand new free press intern, however many years ago. <laughs> Uh, when uh, I, I had to do research on these shows, these these shows that were pitched by people of color, where people of color had gone to um, cable execs and broadcast executives and pitched a show that they wanted to do mm-hmm. and been turned away. So instead, they went and made a web series. And we see so often now that like there's a lot of these web series popping up with diverse creators that we haven't seen on cable television or broadcast television, because there are fewer gatekeepers to get your content online. And that's, that's hugely because of net neutrality. That's hugely because Comcast doesn't get to decide the same way that, uh, that it gets to as a cable provider, you know, what gets on the internet, who can access certain things um, on the internet and I think that that's really critical because that's been a really important avenue for different voices to be heard and for different groups of people to actually see themselves represented in the media. And without it, that, that all sort of becomes at risk because then the cable exec turns you down and you've got nowhere else to go.
1: Yes, and it's so interesting how a lot of the – this has sort of become a new thing that's a little bit flipping the industry on its head, which is that so many of the shows that are coming out or have come out in recent years have started as web series. And then they build these huge audiences, and then now the networks are like, oh, no, 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 we want that, right? So, like, Issa Rae's, you know, show Insecure, like, like you know, she started off doing, like, Awkward Black Girl. Um, Broad City also started off as, like, a web series before it got picked up by Comedy Central, and I think we're starting to see more and more of that. So it's, like, a really interesting, yeah, twist of things.
0: We agree, and I want to ask you, Dana, or anyone who wants to hop in here. You know, why do we see gatekeepers turning down this awesome um, art that that you know? And I'm sure more more folks are going to share about art on YouTube and and other sort of independent art that has reflected their identities. Why why do we see that happening? And why do we see like the same old, very tired? stereotypical representations of women, of people of color, of queer folks. What are the dynamics driving that? And, and you know, what does that have to do with net neutrality?
4: I mean, I think the dynamics are, are racism and bigotry. Uh, that's one of the things that's always the most astonishing. There's always this narrative that, um, oh, we can only have uh, the same characters, the same, uh, you know, handful of white male actors named Chris who have to be, you know, the leads in everything, and the same white women, and we can't tell these other stories because they won't sell. But anytime, like there have been studies done. And when you have diverse creators, diverse people involved, when you have stories that haven't been told, people show up. They want that. Communities want to see themselves reflected in media. So even the economic argument doesn't hold water. It's entirely based on so often the people who are in charge of these gates, the gatekeepers and the people with the financial resources to get through those gates, have certain ideas about the world. And they're primarily, they're based in white supremacy. They're based in ideas about how the world looks and how it should work and the kinds of stories that we tell. And that's an incredibly limited worldview, largely because there's a very limited selection of people
0: making those decisions
1: hmm.
0: And really, I've heard a lot of folks describe net neutrality as really an issue of discrimination, like the, the idea that these mm-hmm. Internet service providers, these big cable companies would, without net neutrality protections, have the ability to discriminate against content. Um, and, I, and, you know, I think that's a big part of why we fight so hard for it. So yeah. who else wants to talk a little bit? Speaking, you know, of fighting of the media that we are fighting for um, and, and the stuff that's out there that you've really seen reflecting yourself?
3: I can share a little bit. Yay. Um, Something that, that Dana shared made me made me think that, like, so I'm a cisgendered heterosexual guy and what? almost all media since I've been growing, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, been... I only did that because of the, the way you said it.
0: I'm cisgendered heterosexual. No,
3: that's fair. That's fair.
0: My name is Eeyore.
3: My name is Eeyore. Um, But you know, so much of media, movies, books, literature has been made for and from the perspective of like the male gaze. And like the way that I, but the other side of that is that like all of the main characters are are also men or it's from like this male perspective. But the way that I don't see myself in the media even though like all of these films and all of these books are you know written to be something that's that that that's for me to get for me to like that's that's you know narrowly casted for me is that like you don't often see actual male characters that are like healthy emotionally that are able to like have good relationships that are people that have like good relationships with other men or with other women or with children or with anybody. Um, and so like the part where this connects to, to net neutrality for me is like, I have seen those those examples, but they're far and few between. I always talk about Mr. Rogers and I think about him a lot and how much he influenced me as a small child and shaped me in the way that I deal with this world emotionally and the way that I like bring myself into this world and interact with other people. And also to bring it back to Star Trek, another example is Geordie um, uh, LaForte, but really all of the characters that LeVar Burton has played. And you look at like uh, at Mr. Rogers and you look at LeVar Burton doing Reading Rainbow, I think that we used to have public media that was much more local and that you could find things like that locally because there wasn't a lot of risk and investment. It didn't take a lot probably to throw together Mr. Rogers. It didn't take a lot to throw together Reading Rainbow. But even now, our NPR stations, our public media is really taken over in the same way that our local news is being taken over by groups like Sinclair, who just got shut down today, so that's exciting, um, that even in those places, in like our public media spheres, there's less space for, for voices that you don't usually hear. And the internet gives us this amazing opportunity for that. And net neutrality is the thing that protects that because it allows for people to have and create media and content that is not just based on like capitalism, just having to make money. And so, well, I don't think that the next uh, LeVar Burton or the next Mr. Rogers is necessarily gonna be um, on PBS or on NPR, I do think they're gonna be on the internet. And I think that that's where we have so many, so many problems in this world are related to toxic masculinity um, mixed with white supremacy. And so I think that the only way that we're gonna have examples for our children to look to, to be able to not see that like, men are people with guns that kill or do terrible things or mistreat, like all these kind of terrible ways that we see ourselves that we're expected to be is is because of net neutrality, because we're going to have new voices. They're going to be able to come out and talk about different kinds of masculinity, what it means to even talk about this kind of dichotomy of masculinity and femininity and to show like how people can have relationships. And it's not just based on this kind of awful drama, pitting people against it. I mean, we see like reality television is the, is the opposite. And so I, I don't, I don't think, um, yeah, I don't. I don't think that that's going to happen again. in, like, in our kind of mainstream media, I think that we're going to have to look for those voices and those examples in places where there are low barriers to entry, where there aren't gatekeepers. And I think the internet's the only place that's going to happen.
5: Yeah, I I mean, I I couldn't agree more, Brandon. Yeah, I mean, I've I've been thinking about net neutrality and the low barrier to entry, and like the, the many pieces of media that I find and enjoy on the internet, and just like my journey with media around like not seeing not seeing myself my community in the media growing up traditional media and how net neutrality and the open internet has just opened up so much more in terms of like being myself finding myself finding community finding the many communities I belong to via the open internet and like the I think a lot about the um the way when when you can You can find community on the internet, and all of a sudden, like feel a sense of belonging and connection. Like I don't, I don't experience that with traditional media. Like, you know, I turn something on, and I'm like, oh, like I belong here. Instead, it's like how I don't belong. And I think the open internet has really provided so much space for people to connect in in many ways with various communities that they belong to and/or are creating and forming online. And that sense of belonging and connection, I just think like. For me, that's what drives this desire to, to keep it open, which is just like this is this is this has so much potential when we build connection amongst people and across communities and and like build belonging and power and strength together. And I see that with the open internet, and like it's for for, for the. For as much bad news as there is on a daily basis of hitting us and then to be able to look, I mean, Brandon, you remind me of this often via Mr. Rogers to like look for the helpers, right? The open internet has allowed so much more space to see the helpers and for the helpers to organize together to really build for social and racial justice. And I just, I'm, I'm so grateful for the, for the internet to be that kind of space where, We don't just have to consume the media that's created and delivered to us, but instead we can create it. We can change the narrative. We can change the story. We can invite others in. We can really build and create power together. And I just, there's like keeping the internet open has just so much potential for us to connect back to these conversations we've been having about um, dreaming of a different future and building it. The role that it plays in organizing is really powerful and beautiful to see. I'm so glad
1: you brought it back to the dreaming and visioning, because that's exactly what I was feeling when I was listening to you talk. Yes. Uh, This is great. This is so awesome to hear all these different perspectives from all of you. Um, Christina, did you have anything you wanted to add on that front?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I was thinking about this, and I think that I, yes, I'm beginning to see myself reflected in the media, but um, there obviously needs to be a whole lot more of it. Um, and, like, thinking back to shows that I grew up with, like, Sister, Sister, or, like, Moesha, um, I remember, like, looking at them and being, like, hey, like, you know, I kind of can, like, relate to this, like, I can kind of identify with, like, these characters, um, or even now, um, shows like Jane the Virgin or, like, Moana, I was thinking about those two characters, and how even, like, aside from being two, uh, women of color, Also, just, like, body image, like, looking at those women and just thinking, like, hey, like, they have curves to their bodies. This is not something that I see often, especially with, like, kids' movies, right? And that um, I think there was a scene in Jane the Virgin where she was, like, squatting on the floor and, like, talking to her husband. um, Spoiler, sorry. (laughs) And um, on the um, the episode, you know, she was just squatting there, and I think I could just resonate with the way that they captured – Having this conversation with her husband and how her her body was displayed, pretty much, um, and that she had curves and so forth. So I think it's interesting with identity of how many layers there are to us. And like, yes, we're on the right like move, I guess, with shows like Insecure and um, Broad City, et cetera, that have um, stories to be told. But there's just so many more. You know, if you think about like the diaspora of um, African people and all the different um, ethnicities and so forth there's just so many stories even within one ethnicity um, that I'm really excited to see but it's something that is very very much needed so yeah I see it but there needs to be a whole lot more
0: it's like it's good to see the progress but then the progress makes us realize how far we have to go
2: (laughs) yeah and it's like the conversation like okay this is cool but one why is it taking this long to get this and like two like yeah this needs to be more
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. I remember when I first saw. I'm glad you brought up um, Moana because it makes me think about the point that Misty made earlier about children. Really, when you introduce technology and media to them, how they like really adopt it. You know, I hand you handle a toddler a a cell phone, and they're like having a a a, a, um, webinar in 10 minutes. (laughs) Um, But when I first saw, and that reminded me of when I first saw um, what is it called Frozen. And I was so shocked at the ending, spoiler alert, um, because you but haven't seen Frozen by now. I yeah, mean, come on now. Like, what are you doing,
1: what are you
5: doing?
3: I haven't seen Frozen,
5: what? don't judge me. Ooh. All right, Brandon, plug your ears. <laughs> okay. Your ears, Brandon.
0: And the fact that she was saved basically by her sister. And by, like, this love of her sister and the sisterhood, yeah. if I remember correctly. I know the parents will know better mm-hmm. than I do. And that I remember when I first saw I'm not going to lie, y'all. I cried. Because for me, every movie I remember growing up at that age, the you were always saved by the handsome prince. Mm-hmm. And yes. that, that I feel like that was so kind of, um, that's so harmful to mm-hmm. us. Because we sort of expect that in life. You, does anybody know what I mean?
2: Yeah. <laughs> like yes. I
0: always know. Oh, Yeah.
1: I legit won't let my, my daughter watch any Disney movies prior to Frozen. Although if I'm missing a good one, y'all can let me know. But like, yeah, she's like seen Frozen my and Moana. Mom. I feel like we're on a good trip up right now. Yeah, okay, on. Okay. All right. We'll go back because I do also need a break from those songs. Uh, <laughs> if anybody needs needs them sung at any time, I got you. let it go. you know, I, I have this. This reminds me of the the
5: first time I watched Moana was with my son. I he was probably like three or four at the time. And he was completely captivated by the movie and we we're watching it. And Moana was going, like sailing across the ocean, like to, to put the heart of the back and the waves were crashing and it was like a pretty dark scene. And he was a very sensitive kid to like loud noises and dark scenes like that. And so I like looked at him and saw him like kind of getting a little like focused inward. And all of a sudden he was me and he goes, wow, she's just so brave. And I, I cried at that moment. I was just like, yeah. Like he was like, he wasn't surprised by her. He was just like, wow. Like she's so brave in this. Like I want to be brave like that kind of way. And to like watch that kind of reaction to a, that movie was it was really moving. And like that sealed the deal for me. I'm like, yes. And let us be very mindful of what what movies we watch next. Like I'm I'm kind of the parent who embarrassingly says I've never taken my kids to the movies and they've only seen two movies. <laughs> but I think it's just. The, the impact they have on them is, is really profound being mindful of, of their media diet in that way is I think really important. I don't want to completely shelter them, but I also don't want them to eat chips for breakfast. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bringing it all back. <laughs> you know? I love it. Oh my gosh.
0: Okay, so, I mean, this is all so beautiful. Can we talk about our hopes and our fears for the future? And I'll model it and just say that I fear forces of consolidation and people uh, wielding massive control over media, but yet I find a lot of hope in activists and indie media makers and really just guerrilla um, creatives who are nonetheless telling stories in like a radical and disruptive way and getting them out to the masses.
4: I fear uh, I fear the response to the backlash to these improvements in terms of representation via diversity. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of, lot of nonsense coming from there in terms of backlash to, to making things better. And, and I fear that we'll get too wrapped up in, in trying to soothe uh, that backlash. I hope that instead uh, we just keep fighting for this is great. We want more. We still want more. We still want this to be better and to keep getting better. We're so far behind from where I think we want and deserve to be.
3: I was just going to say, I fear that even though we have movies like Black Panther and Crazy Rich Asians that are coming out proving that these kind of movies can work even in this capital, this awful capitalistic system, I fear that people are going to say, look, y'all had your movie. We don't need to make another one. Um, And that they won't even be like a, a, a way of proving that these kind of movies that are not just about the normal things, normal people that we see, can do well. I hope I'm wrong. That's my hope.
2: My fear um, is that um, all the things that I get so excited for right now with the media are going to be silenced and people will be kind of like muted a little bit. Um, those who have voices who are not like the common voice, for those people because of things that are happening will be um, a little bit diminished. And then my hope is in us because I know that um, that we could do this. Damn right we can. Christina should not to be all like. Yeah, yeah, sorry, not to be like all political, but I'm just saying we could
0: do it. This is the place to do it.
5: I fear the forces that slow the pace of change. I was going to say I fear the pace of change, but I, I fear the forces that really slow the pace of change. And I hope we can start living and experiencing our dreams of a liberatory media. We so often say that you know. I'm fighting for this, but I'm not going to see it in my lifetime. And I hope we can see more of it in our lifetime than maybe I can sometimes see in the the moments of, in the moments of fear. I love it. Candice, what are your hopes and fears?
1: So simplistic, but I fear the negative, toxic things that happen in social media. Um, You know, the ways that we see, I mean, there's so much of it, right? Like the way that, you know, hate, proliferates and the way that people just interact with each other without that real human connection um, through a computer screen. But my hopes are really around the positives. Like we started this conversation, you know, and Dana was talking about all of the ways that, you know, social media or just net net neutrality um, and the open internet have opened things up in terms of like what I am able to be exposed to. And for me, I just I, I hope that we can hold on to that and just get so much more of it because it's been truly life changing for me on on so many levels and I'm so grateful uh, both to the people who are creating things and putting them out there and also to the you know the structures that we are fighting for every day to to maintain in terms of you know ensuring that there are open networks and open platforms.
0: listening to The Connection, a podcast by Free Press and Free Press Action Fund. You can find future episodes at freepress.net and everywhere we live on social media. Free Press is an advocacy group fighting for your rights to connect and communicate. Learn more at freepress.net.